0: So it's a huge deal that you guys showed up today to celebrate Easter with us because Easter really is a huge part of the Christian faith. Um, And there's things that are just sort of cultural realities around Easter. Like Easter's the one time of the year where guys can unapologetically wear shades of pastels and that's okay, right? Uh, Easter's the one time of the year where it's like you can't have too many accessories. It's like, what do I need with this tie? A tie clip. What do I need with my tie clip? I need a handkerchief. And you can get away with that and not be seen as creepy by your friends. Um, And all that stuff is great and secondary and praise be to God for brunch and hanging out with friends and family. All that's good. But here's the deal. Easter is so central to the Christian faith because Easter is a reminder of what the heart of the Christian faith really is. And what happens throughout history is that there's these moments where the true faith of Jesus, the true heart of Christianity gets kidnapped by things that have nothing to do with the actual good news of Jesus. This happens in a lot of different ways. One of the big ways is with just dead religion, dead religion. And and what dead religion basically teaches is you have to figure out a way through ritual or through some means of penance Or through you turning over a new leaf, um, you got to figure out a way to deal with the guilt and the shame that you carry. You got to figure out how to get to God based on your goodness or on the right prayers or on the right meditations or the right lifestyle. You've got to figure out how to build a ladder to get to God. And what's tragic about that is that's actually, that's actually not a part of the Christian faith whatsoever. That's not the good news of Jesus. Um, Sometimes the good news of Jesus gets kidnapped by what we'll just call moralism, which is like a professional sport in churches in the Midwest. And what moralism basically teaches is that the heart of Christianity is be good, be good. And you hear sermons all the time in the Midwest that are basically taking Bible characters throughout Scripture, holding them up and saying, here's seven ways in which you need to be good like David. Or you need to be good like this person. Or you need to try to copy this person. And the problem with moralism is that moralism is not even in the same zip code as the heart of Christianity. So once a year when we celebrate Easter, once a year when we celebrate Easter, we get this beautiful, tangible reminder of what is the beating heart of the Christian faith. And the beating heart of the Christian faith is not what you can do to get to God. And it's not you trying really hard to follow good examples of great people. The beating heart of the Christian faith is Jesus. It's what he's done for you. It's the lavish love of God that he bore your sin and your shame. And he actually overthrew the greatest enemies of humanity, sin and death through his resurrection. Easter, Easter at its heart, is central to what it means to be a Christian. In fact, uh, if you're at all familiar with the Bible or not, you, you've probably heard of the Apostle Paul. He was one of the early thinkers of the Christian faith and writers of the Christian faith. And in First Corinthians 15, he says some really, really deep stuff. He says this, If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. It's popular to hear Christians say things like, uh, well, even if the resurrection didn't happen, even if it didn't happen, living a Christian life is a better way to live a full and rich life. And one of the founders of our faith is actually saying, if the resurrection didn't happen, living the Christian life is the most tragic thing a human being could ever do. In fact, what Paul is saying here is that if the resurrection didn't happen, if Jesus didn't physically return from the dead as he said he would, then the Bible is actually not a helpful book in any way. The Bible is one of the most dangerous documents that's ever been written and it should at least be put on the shelf if not outright burned. If the resurrection of Jesus did not happen, then Jesus is not a good teacher. If the resurrection's a fable or if it's just mythology that we carved around the life of Jesus. If the resurrection didn't take place in time and space 2,000 years ago, then Jesus was either a false prophet or an absolute insane, crazy narcissist. If the resurrection didn't happen, it means Christianity is a total waste of your life. If it didn't happen, then it does mean that death gets the last word on humanity. Now, if that's true though, the other side of that is also true. If the resurrection did happen, if 2,000 years ago, the grave was open and Jesus returned from the dead physically, if that took place, then it means that Jesus can't just be another good teacher or a philosopher or just a prophet. If the resurrection took place, it means that all of the claims of Jesus are true and it means that he is God in the flesh. If the resurrection took place, it means that Christianity is not just another thought movement in all the cluttered thought movements of time. It's not just another philosophy or another religion or another worldview. It means if the resurrection took place, Jesus is life and he is truth. If the resurrection took place, this is pretty stunning news. It means that Jesus is not just like another historical figure that you can sort of emulate Like, thank God for Abraham Lincoln. Here's good things about his life that you can learn from. If the resurrection took place, Jesus is not a dead and buried historical figure. He is alive. And if he's alive, that means there's hope for you and there's hope for humanity. If the resurrection took place, this is stunning. If the resurrection took place, it means death doesn't get the last word which means that Christ was then the beginning of new creation. We're we're about to start the book of Ecclesiastes next week. Uh, I think the book of Ecclesiastes is kind of like the crazy uncle of the Christian faith. Uh, We've been trying to get that uncle out of the family for years. Jewish people tried to get the book of Ecclesiastes out of the Bible. Christians have tried to get the book of Ecclesiastes out of the Bible. Uh, But the truth is, like when you sit down with that crazy uncle, you start to find out, that if you really listen to his stories, you get to hear a little bit about mom that you didn't know before. And when we read the book of Ecclesiastes, here's one of the big ideas. If death gets the final word, what's the point of anything? What's the point of love? What's the point of work? What's the point of art? If this world is just curling through space and at the end of the day, our sun's gonna burn out and we're gonna be brought into oblivion, why get up tomorrow morning? if the resurrection happened though it means that god is going to remake all things there's going to be new creation in which everything that's broken gets made right so my hope today is that even if you don't believe in the resurrection i hope that you at least want to believe in it now In in years past, we've talked about the resurrection and how important it is, and we've walked through kind of like historical and also spiritual evidences for the resurrection. That The resurrection is not just asking for your blind faith, but there are, in fact, historical and spiritual evidences. Today, we're going to approach it a little bit differently. Today, I want to ask the question together, how does Jesus feel... And what does Jesus think about people that are dealing with either really fragile faith that feels like it's on life support, or the loss of faith, or no faith at all? How does Jesus feel about those of us that are cynics? What's his heart towards people that maybe were raised in the church and you saw the church instead of being used as God's hands and feet to bring life and redemption and healing, you saw the church use the Bible to actually wound and damage people. You got hurt and you saw that the church can be this institutionalized, really unhealthy club that actually doesn't look anything like Jesus. Or what about those of us in the room that had like a little glimmer of hope and faith that just maybe there's a God and just maybe he, Jesus is his son and then you experience profound suffering and loss. And now you're wrestling with, is there a God? Because if so, how does this stuff happen? Or if there's a God, would I even want to know him because if he allows this world to be like this, can I trust him? What about those people? What about those people in our church that really want to believe. There's a lot of us. They really want to believe, but there's roadblocks and barriers in the way of their faith, and they just don't know how to get around them or over them or through them, and they're just running up against those barriers to their faith again and again. The question we're going to ask today is, what does Jesus think about you? How does Jesus feel about you? How does Jesus want to engage you as a doubter, as a skeptic, as someone whose faith is anemic and struggling, or someone who's lost your faith altogether? And as we ask that question, we're going to go to a resurrection story in the New Testament. And we're going to look at the story of one of the friends of Jesus that actually lost his faith because of the crucifixion. He lost his hope in what Jesus said he was going to do. And we're going to look at Jesus engaging him. And and here's my request. It's really simple. For a few minutes, could you read this story, not at the safe distance of arm's length, but could you read the story with your imagination for just a little bit? Could you give yourself permission to hope and dream and to even say, what would it be like if I believe this? What would it be like if this is true? What would it be like if the way Jesus saw and loved Thomas in his doubt and unbelief is maybe the way Jesus feels about me in my wrestlings with faith? John chapter 20, starting in verse 24. Let's enter into this story. Here's what it says Now, Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. Here's what's happening. Uh, Jesus had this band of disciples that he spent three years with teaching and training, and they got to see Jesus do miracles, and they got to see him bring life and healing and grace to people all over their region. And then Jesus goes to the cross, he's crucified, and three days later, he comes back from the dead, and he's made appearances bodily to these disciples who are gonna be witnesses of Jesus all over the place. And what's happened up to now is Thomas... One of Jesus' friends has been left out of those appearances. Thomas hasn't seen Jesus. And his friends have come and said, hey, he's alive. We've seen him. And Thomas is baffled. Now, before you start to get too critical about Thomas, uh, can we just be honest about what he's experiencing? Jesus was a man in his early 30s, a Jewish man. He claimed to be more than just a man. He claimed to be the son of God. And Jesus said that he was the fulfillment of all the promises of the Old Testament that God would bring his kingdom to earth. And Thomas, among other people, Thomas actually heard Jesus and saw Jesus and was banking his hope on Jesus being who he said he was that Jesus would have this crown and his kingdom would bring restoration to the world and life and justice and healing. And now all of a sudden, instead of Jesus getting a crown from Thomas's perspective, he's been executed in the most heinous way that any human being could kill another human being in the first century. In fact, polite people didn't even talk about crucifixion. Today, the cross is a sign of hope, right? Uh, We see the cross, and we have ideas of restoration and redemption. Well, two thousand years ago, the cross was a sign of absolute shame and violence. The worst criminals were crucified, and crucifixion was not cute. Like we have James Avery beautiful crosses around today, we wear them as fashion. Back then, back then, the cross was an event in which someone would be beaten and naked, and stripped, and they would lose control of bodily functions, and they would die a really long, agonizing death, and Thomas was really hoping that Jesus was who he said he was. He was really hoping that he could trust Jesus, and bank on Jesus, and now instead of Jesus getting the crown that Thomas expected, Jesus got murdered. He saw his friend die. He saw his friend bleed. He saw his friend get wrapped in somewhere around a hundred pounds of burial cloths and spices and laid in a cave. And now his friends are saying, Hey, he's back from the dead. And Thomas is scratching his head and saying, Hey, how can a crown and a cross possibly go together? Look what he says. Verse 24, unless I see his hands, the marks of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side. I will never believe. Now, Thomas has received a pretty rough rap in the church in the last 2,000 years. We've nicknamed him what? Doubting Thomas. He's been sort of the butt of our jokes and he's been looked down on throughout the ages. But I think if we could be honest, and I know church historically in the Midwest is not a place where you want to do that. (laughs) We just throw out that commandment about not lying because we're at church. But if we could be honest and actually be truthful with ourselves and with each other, I think the reason that we've been so hard on Thomas is because we see so much of ourselves in him. I think it's smoke and mirrors. Because the reality is, Thomas is some of us all the time. And he's all of us some of the time. What's happened is he's put his faith in Jesus. And instead of getting what he expected, everything went the opposite direction. And now dreams have died and there's grief and there's loss and there's fear. We have a lot of people in this room right now. You are Thomas. So what is Jesus going to do with him? What's he going to say to him? What's going to happen? Look at verse 26. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. It's really painful to linger in doubt for any period of time. To be unsure of the meaning of life, of what comes after death, it's it's really painful. Thomas here is lingering in doubt for eight days. And what I find amazing about this is that he's lingering in doubt not in isolation, but he's lingering in doubt in a community of faith surrounded by disciples who don't embrace doubt, but they do embrace doubters. This is a beautiful invitation from Jesus to those of us in the room that are dealing with doubt and unbelief, that have lost our faith, that have anemic faith. One of my favorite singer-songwriters is a guy named Jason Isbell, and uh, my favorite album of his was written after he after he sobered up for the first time in years. And one of the great songs on the album, he says these words, in a room by myself, looks like I'm here with a guy that I judged worse than anyone else. So I pace and I pray and I repeat the mantras that might keep me clean for the day. And then he says, and the church bells are ringing for those that are easy to please. What's his experience of church been like? It's been an experience of church that says, welcome as long as you don't have a past. Or welcome as long as you don't have questions or doubt. Welcome to church as long as you don't think or feel too deeply about really important questions. Welcome to church as long as you're not like Thomas or like Mary Magdalene or an addict or full of anxiety or depression wrestling with whether or not the claims of Jesus can really be true. And yet here's what we see in the very beginning, even before the day of Pentecost, which is often thought of as like the launching of the church of Jesus. Even before that day of Pentecost, here's what we see. Jesus's dream for the church would not be that it would be a place for just people with easy questions who pretend to have all the answers Jesus' dream for the church would be that we would be a community brought together in him and by him where doubt isn't embraced but doubters are now in this moment something really crazy happens look at verse 26 although the doors were locked Jesus came and he stood among them and he said peace be with you this is amazing what does Jesus do for Thomas and his friends? Well, he actually moves through a locked door to get to them. Nothing can keep Jesus from his own. Not locked doors, dead hearts, deep sin, wrestling with doubt, anemic faith, or people struggling. There's a guy named Saul who became a guy named Paul. When he was Saul, he hated Jesus and he hated the church and he persecuted Christians all over the world. And at one point, he was literally moving to a town called Damascus so that he could kill and imprison Christians. And I think sometimes our worldview of Jesus is that he must have really been like reading a book on apologetics, like Lee Strobel's Case for Faith. And he must have been praying something to the effect of, you know, Jesus, maybe I'm wrong about you. In fact, I open up my heart for you to come in and speak to me and get me. But the truth is this, he was literally breathing out hatred towards Jesus and all of a sudden Jesus came through the locked door of his unbelief and violence and he rescues this guy named Saul. What's happening in this text is Jesus is showing us that the locked doors in our lives, the locked doors in our relationships are not insurmountable for Christ to pursue. Some of you are sitting right now behind the locked door of being hurt in the church And you're here, man, but you're feeling real fragile. You're feeling real sketchy. You're just looking for something to make you bolt. Some of you are standing behind the locked door of grief. Some of you are standing behind the locked door of the dreams that you had for how your life was supposed to go, your life not being like that at all. Here's what's beautiful about Jesus. Locked doors don't keep him out. Jesus pursues, Jesus moves towards Jesus comes after his friend, Thomas. Now, the question we have to ask is, is that declaration of peace, peace be with you, is that really for all of them, including Thomas, or is it just for the disciples that have seen Jesus and now believe? Is Jesus going to show up and bring religious condemnation and belittlement to Thomas? Is he going to mock him? Like, is Jesus going to show up, move through the locked door, sit Thomas down in front of all the friends and say, hey, Thomas, is it that you're stupid or is it that you're hard-hearted? right? Because I told you I was going to come back from the dead and I did it and you didn't believe and now I'm really frustrated and disappointed in you. In fact, Thomas, go ahead and leave this community of disciples. Go do your own thing. What's Jesus going to say? What's he going to do? Well, look what happens. This is, this is a picture of the good news of the gospel. Verse 27, then he said to Thomas, doubting Thomas, demanding proof Thomas, hard-hearted Thomas, here's what he said, put your finger here. <laughs> See my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Hey, I think some of you don't believe in a version of God that I don't believe in either. It's a version of God that in this moment would come to Thomas with shame, with mocking, with verbal abuse. Here's what the living God does in his son, Jesus. He comes to Thomas. He's like, hey, Thomas, your heart is hard right now and your faith is cold right now. But see these holes in my hands and the hole in my side. That's what I did to pay for your sin and to bring you into my family. That's what I did. That's what I did, Thomas, for skeptics. That's what I did for doubters. Doubters what I did for people to have a hard time believing in God because they can't see him? What did he do? He took all of our hard-heartedness and our bitterness and our blindness to God. Every sin we've ever committed, Jesus took it willingly as an act of love to sacrifice for us. So why would he show up to a doubter that needs his grace and mock him or shame him or abuse him? He shows up with kindness. One of the great prophecies about jesus in the old testament that i have to go to a lot because i'm a really messed up guy is that when the messiah comes he won't break bruised reeds that's kind of weird language what does that mean well think of like a stalk of grass that's damaged it's bent and you being that stalk of grass the messiah is not going to come and snap off what's damaged He doesn't extinguish dimly burning wicks is the next part of it. Meaning if you just have like a little ember of faith, he's going to see it and say, ah, you should have had more faith. You should have had more zeal. You should have more passion. I'm just going to snuff out what you do have. The Messiah is going to be meek and he's going to be gentle and dimly burning wicks. He's not going to extinguish and bruised reeds. He's not going to crush. And some of you need to know today that you're a bruised reed. And that moving through the locked door that Jesus does for Thomas, some of you are expecting that to be like a Steven Seagal action movie. Like he's going to kick down the door. It's going to be like a SWAT team. He's going to throw down flashers and tear gas. And don't get me wrong, sometimes he can do that. But more often than not, the way he moves to the locked door is he comes to you as a bruised reed and he brings hope for your soul. He brings the comfort of grace. He brings a flicker of longing for him. Some of you today, Jesus actually moved through the locked door of your life today. As we sang, as we prayed, as we've opened scripture. Why? Because he loves, he loves to restore bruised reeds and dimly burning wicks. Your faith is not judged based on its quality or quantity. It's based on its direction it's jesus and maybe your faith is like a little tiny grain of sand it's like tiny you're not going to show it off to anybody hey look at my faith it's not about the quality or the quantity it's about the direction of your faith jesus and he moves towards you in your brokenness and in your weakness now what's the what's the logical conclusion if Jesus really did come back from the dead and if he's willing to meet us in our doubt and unbelief with this kind of tenderness, well, Thomas nails it, verse 28. My Lord and my God. This is the great conclusion of the resurrection. When you encounter the power of the resurrected Christ, it's that he can't just be another teacher. He can't just be an example. It's that he's God. He's Lord. He's Savior. He's Redeemer and Master. But what about us, right? Because probably for most of us in the room, Jesus hasn't showed up in the flesh, in your apartment, breaking out the scars. How can you experience the power of the resurrected Christ like Thomas? Look at verse 29. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen me and yet have believed. See, Thomas has this weird order of faith that we don't get to have yet today. Thomas has sight that turns into faith. But Jesus does something beautiful for his kids. He brings faith that eventually becomes sight. It's not blind faith, though. It's not like faith where you just take some preacher's word for it. And it's not faith that just gets handed down from parents that you just sort of have to believe to keep cultural sensitivities in play. No, look at verse 30. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. What's the point of the book of John and the Bible in general? Well, look here. The Bible is not a book that's a, a roadmap to your life. It's not primarily about you. Like, the Bible's really unhelpful when you're like, hey, should I marry John? Hmm. Bible roulette. Oh, Leviticus. That's a terrifying verse. <laughs> that's terrifying. Should, should I go to OU or OSU? And what should my major be? Hmm. Oh, a lot of people getting slaughtered in numbers. Like, don't, don't know how that's the road the roadmap to my life. See, listen, the Bible is meant to be read Christologically. What does that mean? It means this book is God disclosing himself to us in Christ. It's about Jesus. It's about how badly we need him. It's about just how huge the mercy and love of God is and just how deep and significant our need for redemption is. It's about God working in Christ to redeem and rescue. And what happens is his word brings faith because it's God's power to reveal and disclose Jesus to us. Today, we just read what Jesus did after the resurrection for his friend Thomas. That's telling, that's telling you what God's like. If you want to know what the Father's like, you look at Jesus. If you're dealing with cynicism, doubt, skepticism, your faith feels frail, it feels weak, it feels like maybe you lost it. What do you need? Look at Jesus. Jesus. Look at Jesus, look at his cross, look at his resurrection, look at his heart. He's for you.